Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Luskerton. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Kevin Yates, a licensed psychologist practicing in the U.S. Air Force. Dr. Yates served in the Air Force as a mental health tech prior to entering graduate school, and after his service, he entered the University of Iowa's Counseling Psychology Doctoral Program and graduated in 2018. With me, by the way, I should probably say that. We went to graduate school together and then we moved in different paths. And I'm really, really excited to, to talk to him about this because he did his internship at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, then re-entering the US Air Force. And now he serves at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas as a major and recently entered a highly competitive postdoctoral fellowship in neuropsychology. Kevin, thank you so much for being here with us today, and welcome to the program. Yes, thank you, Sam. Uh, so glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been looking forward to this one, not just because I get to see an old friend, but because I've been very, very curious what your path has looked like. You know, our paths are very, very different between the civilian and military worlds. And um, I'd be remiss if we didn't just like name some of the history of our field too, clinical and counseling psychology. It has roots in in the military, at least many of them, in survey and assessment and the needs of the military kind of spawning this growth of our field, as, at least from my understanding of it. And then so at various points in U.S. history, we've needed psychologists or other mental health providers to support service members. They might be struggling with what's happening at war, but they may also be trying to better assess like who's going to be an appropriate person for a certain kind of job and the needs of the military. And so, you know, insert us as clinical and counseling psychologists that have this training are also trying to specialize and develop our assessment tools even more. And we've been on the forefront of treating service members and veterans alike for, for many years, along with our allied uh, medical health fields. So, Kevin, I, I want to hear from you. Tell me a little bit about your own roots in the military and and where where did you find yourself, uh, you know, as you chose to to go into the Air Force? Yeah, I think for me, it was a lot of uh, luck and happenstance, <laughs> uh -huh. a lot of uh, right place and, and right time. Uh, so as you alluded, uh, I initially enlisted as a mental health technician. And I had a pretty similar story to, I think, a lot of enlistees, meaning I really followed the footsteps of my older brother. He's about 10 years older than me and he joined the Air Force about 10 years before I did. And he joined the Air Force, he was in the Intel field. He got most of his degree done and overall it set him on a path towards uh, success in his career. Mm -hmm. For me, I was kind of in a place where I'd graduated high school and was going to community college, uh, but really felt kind of rudderless. I didn't mm -hmm. have, a, have a good direction, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Knew I wanted to go be an adult, whatever that means, and mm -hmm. one of the more traditional college experience, but I, I didn't really have the means to do that. And so what shifted as the Air Force always being an option kind of in the background for me, really shifted to, to being in the forefront. 
And so ultimately I decided to, to enlist in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And you got to correct me if I'm wrong. This is not my area of expertise, but my understanding is there's an acronym for everything in the military. And so uh, the acronym MOS is what's standing out in my mind. And, sure. and so I mentioned what you were doing, uh, being a mental health tech, but how did you decide on that or how did they decide on that for you? Yes. Uh, yeah. So MOS is generally used in the army and I think Marines, it's the, I'm going to okay. get it wrong. It's probably military occupational specialty, but that's mm-hmm. probably made up. But <laughs> in the Air Force, we use what's called an AFSC, an Air Force Specialty Code. Uh, mm-hmm. For some reason, we all need to have different acronyms for the same thing. Yeah. Um, but that kind of goes back to my path of being lucky. So when you're joining the Air Force, you can kind of go in a few different ways. You can either have a designated job saying, I'm going to go to basic training. And after that, I'm going to be a crew chief. So I'm going to go work on aircraft or whatever the specific job is. You can also go in in a general aptitude area. So there tends to be, there's four, I think there's administrative, mechanical, electrical. And then what I did was what's called general, the general aptitude area. And so it's called general for a reason, because Mm -hmm. it is a real hodgepodge of different jobs. So anything from intel to security forces, our our military police in the Air Force, to line cook, and then also our enlisted medical career fields are in that general career field. So I went to basic training and, and with a gamble of that it was going to work out for me. And I don't think I, I did not know until I was enlisted in in basic training that that was probably not the most prudent of decisions, (laughs) but it worked out well because I went through basic training and they said that, Hey, you're going to go be a mental health technician. I'm 18 years old. And I said, I don't know what that is, but sounds cool. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That kind of put me on this path towards becoming a psychologist and, a, and now a neuropsychology fellow. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit about your background and and what not just drew you to the military, but what drew you to our field, too, as a health service psychologist, more broadly speaking. And I, I'm curious, if we take a really big kind of zoomed out look or perspective, what are the military's needs regarding psychologists? Why do why does the military need psychologists at all? Sure. I think when we think about, when most people think about the military, they tend to think about the, the action heroes, right? The, those in the direct support of the mission. So it's your army infantry or Marines going to kick down doors, go mm-hmm. you know, take that hill. In the Air Force, it would be our aviators, the aviators, those who are actually flying the planes. But I think, wait, people may not realize is that that takes a lot of infrastructure that takes a lot of support in order to basically make sure the mission is is being done. So you basically all those people, they need to get paid. They need to eat. They need to Mm -hmm. function and they also need medical care. Yeah. And so that is where we as psychologists come in, meaning that we provide many, many different things, but in, in a nutshell, we provide the mental health care, we assess psychological readiness to, to perform the mission, and as you alluded to previously, assessment and selection. So how do we make sure the right person is in the right position? 
And ultimately why we have uniformed psychologists, uniformed members is to deploy. We want to be able to provide those services as close in proximity to where the mission is happening, as opposed to having to remove people from the deployed location. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kevin, I, what does that mean about the, the population you're serving? Um, to be more specific, when I worked in college mental health, there are some tendencies that, or some commonalities that you might see. You know, test anxiety is a really big presenting concern, right? In that context, and I'm I'm curious. We I think as a broader population, we have a stereotype of like, oh, you must be seeing a lot of PTSD, Kevin. It must be just like 100% PTSD, people coming back from war and PTSD. And so I think we do hear a great deal about the trauma piece, but I'm curious, like, what does that mean in terms of presenting concerns and the treatment approach that, that you all take as psychologists then? Sure. And we absolutely do see our, our fair share of, of trauma. It's much more prevalent in our population than I would say in the general uh, civilian population. But I would say our what thing what people are dealing with is probably pretty similar in, in a different context than you would see mm-hmm. in a civilian outpatient clinic. I think you mentioned a, a university counseling service. I think the thing that struck me, I also did a practicum and worked in that setting. When I got to actually being in the military, you're dealing with a lot of the same population. So our, our junior mm-hmm. enlisted, the bulk of our force tends to be those 18 to 24 year olds. Right. That's true. So you're dealing with first time away from home. How do you, how do you be an adult? How do you kind of navigate this very kind of crucial developmental side of things, as well as it, the adapting to the military is a, a really difficult thing. And for some people, it is it, not the best fit and you have to help them try to navigate that. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, then besides those kinds of things, your, your general anxiety and, and depression, we're, we're kind of seeing most of those things that you, that you might expect to see in, in other settings. Mm-hmm. I, well, I appreciate kind of hearing a more broader idea of what, what you might be seeing. And, um, and also that it, perhaps that it's more um, uh, those transitional issues too. Uh, understandably, like that there's a similar age group as college mental health, but also there there are various transitions too of being out of potentially their their home or their their previous place of residence and um, being away from potentially family or or friends that they used to be around. And so there are some some commonalities that I'm hearing you allude to, and I really appreciate that, Kevin. I what you you struck me as the term transition. I think the the other piece is it's kind of a strange thing being in the military, meaning you can do 20 years of service and then you can retire. And so mm-hmm. thing that you've known for your entire adult life, uh, you could essentially retire at 38 if you come in at 18. Wow. And so when you get to that time period, a lot of people who've been very successful in the military now are like, what's next? What does, uh, instead of being major Yates, what does Mr. Yates uh, look like? What does that that mean? Or I, in a lot of ways, the military can be easy in the sense that it tells you what to do and sure. you, you can follow it. Now that freedom can be very difficult for people. Oh, what a role transition. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what that's like to basically spend all of your adult life so far, all of your working career, and then make that change. No matter what the uh, 
career track you're on, whether that's civilian or military, but, but yeah, what a significant chunk of time, more than half of that person's life then at that point. Absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about how a, a trainee, a graduate student might enter into a military psychologist position. How do they begin that process? You know, I've heard things like HPSP and some stuff about the internship match process. Help us understand, like, what all is there? What's the landscape? It can kind of feel overwhelming. Sure. There are a lot of different pieces to entering into the military. I would say no matter where you're at in the stage of your graduate training, it is not too early to start exploring some of these options. So whether you're first year or on, I think being informed and in, in really trying to set up your application, your make yourself competitive for the different sites. The first thing I'll, I'll mention is this is the first resource, APA is Division 19. So the Society for Military Psychology. This is where you should go if you, this is the first time or mm -hmm. even the seventh time of, of considering it. I was on it yesterday and it really breaks things down nicely of how do I join the military? How do I become a military psychologist? And so it breaks that down into the Navy, the Army, the Air Force. Those are the three sites that have military psychologists and puts you on the right path, regardless of if you're a trainee looking for internship or even more a direct accession. So the APA Division 19 website is, is where I would go first. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wish I would have known about this when I went through graduate school, but the Center for Deployment Psychology, the CDP has what's called the Winter and Summer Institute. And basically the Winter Institute is a three-day program. It's, it's virtual, it's coming up in January, I believe. And that's a three-day program. The Summer Institute is a five-day program, and I believe that'll be in-person in Bethesda. Mm -hmm. And really that is Military Psychology 101. So an introduction into what military psychologist is, what they do, as well as what are the pathways for military mm -hmm. psychology internships. So it's a really great resource. The other thing I, I think that is even probably more important with that piece is networking. So mm -hmm. the people who put those workshops, workshops on tend to be the faculty at the various psychology internship sites. So having a point of contact, somebody that you're able to connect with as you kind of navigate this, this confusing process is crucial. Absolutely, yeah. Last thing I'll mention here is you talked about the HPSP, which is the, the Health Profession Scholarship Program. And so this is a program that it covers tuition fees, as well as you get a stipend for the, the last couple of years of your training. So Army and Air Force offer a, a one to two year scholarship, and then the Navy offers a two to three year scholarship. Mm -hmm. So in your last years of training before internship, you would be eligible and really it's with the understanding that once internship comes around or, or after internship you will commission as a military psychologist right right and so that that's when you kind of owe some time back to the military absolutely yes yeah okay and that's really really helpful i i, I think just to, to know there are a number of resources that you've listed off that people can turn to 
if they're interested in learning more about the kind of recruitment process and, and how you commission into the military and the options, the branches specifically too. Up until this point, though, we've been focusing on the like preparation and process of becoming uh, a psychologist in the military. The other piece now is what is it like when you're in and what is the day to day like? I I'm so curious, like what's your week like, Kevin? Yes, that is a, a good question that can be hard to nail down depending on, on the week. So being a military psychologist tends to be a, a very dynamic position. So lots of changes, lots of, of different hats and, and things that you have to do. Now I'm primarily in, I am in a neuropsychology fellowship. So my role is, is training. So I'll, I'll more talk about what my position before this looked like. So there tends to be a, a little bit of a ramp up, right? So after internship, you're primarily focusing on one licensure and then to building up some clinical skills, building up your, your caseload. Pretty quickly, the officer piece of being a military psychologist comes in, meaning that you're going to have to juggle a lot of different leadership positions. Mm -hmm. That is the, the key thing, one of the key things that I think sets apart the uniqueness of the job. And so depending on where you're at or the number of personnel, most people can expect to have at least one leadership positions, but as you get rank, you're probably gonna have multiple. So mm -hmm. in my last position before this, I was dual hatted as our, our mental health clinic officer in charge, the OIC. So I'm running the clinic and, and making sure the operations are, are running fully. I'm also serving as the alcohol and drug abuse prevention and treatment program. So our substance abuse clinic, I'm the ADAP wow. program manager. And so I'm, I'm managing these two clinics as well as having a caseload of my own. Obviously my caseload is not as big as those who are full-time clinicians, but it's a, a lot of different things that you have to juggle and, and mm -hmm. you, you try to, to develop and learn how to multitask, figuring out what the priorities are, and, and that could be a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah, Kevin, as you detail that, I'm just recognizing, whoa, our paths start to look very, very different. Mm -hmm. Because with me, I'm I'm just seeing clients, especially right now, I'm just seeing clients, right? And that's my primary professional area, just seeing clients each week. And so for you, what I'm hearing is like, if you stay in the military, that track is going to pull you towards leadership roles in particular, and you're going to have to wear multiple hats, not just be a clinician providing services to clients. Absolutely. As you gain in rank, so I came in as a captain and I'm a major now, as you gain more seniority and, and rank, the expectation is you're shifting more into a leadership role. And the, the balance of that is going to look different for, for everybody, but the expectation is that you're, you're managing both, really. That seems really, really challenging, though. Right? Because, and maybe that's because I, I'm not doing that. I'm not in that track. But but that seems really challenging to then all of a sudden you, you graduate from school, you're practicing, and then boom, these leadership roles start to come at you pretty fast. Like you, you were managing a clinic and this alcohol and substance program too. I mean, that it sounds like a lot. And so what, what it's leaving me with is this curiosity of like what mentorship looks like when you're in the military. How do you become a leader in this way? 
Sure. I would say mentorship is, is built into our system. It is really encouraged and there are, are many opportunities along the way. I've had, had many, many different mentors in the military. My old flight commander when I was enlisted, he went to the university, our program, the University of Iowa Counseling Psychology and helped lead me to that path. Mm -hmm. And so that, that networking has been important. But moving forward, everybody has a rater and a supervisor. So your rater may be a more senior psychologist or other mental health professional. What I found is I've really kept into contact with the, the faculty at my internship sites, the, those training programs mm -hmm. that I have shifted. We are now technically peers, which is a little strange to, to, uh -huh. to think about, but I have many different mentors that I'll go to for different things, depending on the, the context. So some I'm, I seek more clinical mentorship and, and others, it's more about wearing the, the officer hat and mm -hmm. how do I develop what's the right, right move. And so I would really, I think that is built in with our program that there are, are many different ways to get mentorship. Mm -hmm. Kevin, I, I want to rewind a little bit so before we even need the mentorship of, of like leadership training, if you will, if we rewind a little bit to that, that first kind of few years in the military, those first steps as a military psychologist, it sounds like it's more practice heavy. You're, you're working more directly with clients as the bulk, the majority of your schedule. Is that fair? I would say probably for the first six months to a, a year, okay. uh, that is completely arbitrary, uh, but my, my best guess, mm -hmm. really you, you, it'll depend on the, the site that you're at. And so I went from Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio was my first base after internship. And that was a very big trading program. It's another one of our internship sites. So there were lots of people to share the wealth. My second site where, where I was, there were two officers, including myself. And so we had the flight commander who really helped kind of bring me on board, but they need you to be filling those roles pretty quickly. They, they wow. want to, to share the wealth and be able to take some time off occasionally. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, understandable for them as well, but the expectations are, are coming at you to, to be able to step up and, and take that responsibility. I'm curious from a clinical standpoint, because this is the clinical consult after all, what your clinical process looks like with clients or the the, the process that you're working with, uh, airmen, like, you know, what's your approach? Because I think the stereotype that I have, I don't know if it's right, is, or the assumption is that maybe there's even more of like, you need to be evidence-based in a military setting and maybe there are protocols and things to follow. So I'm just kind of curious for those that are thinking about the career path or just wanting to have a better understanding of what it's like from the inside? Sure. I would say all of our training programs are, are really heavily based on evidence-based treatment. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, I, I think there's a lot of flexibility. So prior to my internship, I did not, I was not trained in any of the trauma-based EBPs or evidence-based practice. But after that, I've been trained in CPT, cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure, and, and EMDR. And so I've gotten a lot of training in that 
realm. And really, I, I think our overall model is that generally speaking, if you have a trauma or PTSD type patient, you need to defend the type of work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and most of us probably use an evidence-based practice. Now, that being said, you're not forced if somebody, I think most clinicians know that just because somebody has PTSD, that doesn't mean they have the eight other things going on in their life that they have to, to deal with that may take precedence. Mm -hmm. So there's not an official clicking stopwatch, right? That, right. That's down that by session two, you're jumping into to, to PE right away. Mm -hmm. I would say it's a lot more flexible. And then I, I think outside of those issues, there, there's a lot of freedom that it is not necessarily expected to follow a specific evidence base or, or well, a specific protocol, excuse me. So CBT looks different for, for everybody. We could all say we're doing CBT in a certain way. And, and generally there's some freedom in, in how we accomplish that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful to better understand. And to that end, like, I think I'm kind of alluding to the top down pressure that some organizations can put on clinicians to practice a certain kind of way, even if that is beneficial, efficacious, important. Relatedly, I want to kind of explore the service to the military and the service to clients. I'm wondering about the dilemma that might be present there and the ethics that we need to consider. Absolutely. I, I think you've really encapsulated probably the most unique aspect of being a military psychologist. We really fall under what we conceptualize as the two client dilemma. So for every client encounter that we have, there are two clients. There's the individual in front of us that has all their wants and treatment needs. The second client is the needs of the military, the needs mm -hmm. of the Air Force at large. So as a military psychologist, I tend to conceptualize virtually every encounter I do with an active duty service member as a fitness for duty evaluation. Mm -hmm. So are they fit to deploy and are they compatible with military service? Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a challenging, it is a challenging thing to wrap your head around as a psychologist, because in the civilian sector, I think it would be odd if you called somebody's supervisor employer and told them about their mental health status. Right. Versus in the military, if I have specific fitness for duty concerns, I am ethically obligated to inform their commander. Mm -hmm. So it is a shift in, in how we have to view things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they rub against each other, but I, I find that the majority of our clinical work, the two clients are aligned, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's if somebody comes in with an anxiety or depressive disorder, they want to improve their functioning. They want to not feel as anxious or depressed anymore. The Air Force wants that person to be a good performer in their job and to be able to deploy. How do I fit those needs? I treat their anxiety. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in that case, and again, I would say that's probably the majority of cases, there's really no conflict there. It's a win-win it's a for, for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. There are cases when I have to take steps. So A is deployment. Really, I have to conceptualize every active duty service member 
as are they ready to deploy? So frequently, I think the more extreme cases, do I think this person can go to Afghanistan in the combat zone and carry a weapon with them every day? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, I have to, to take steps. If that is a more acute issue, so maybe there's some acute suicidality or a flare-up of symptoms, really what that, that looks like is I have to put a, a temporary duty limiting profile. So saying for 90 to 120 days, you can't deploy, we're going to focus on treatment and assuming that you respond and are more acutely stable, then we'll get you back in, in into the mission. Mm -hmm. So those tend to be a little bit easier. There are also bigger fitness for duty concerns. So in terms of compatibility with military service, mm -hmm. there are certain conditions that are, are not compatible with military service. So I'm thinking about things like psychosis, mm -hmm. mania, in untreated substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. Those things are not compatible with, with military service. So I can't have that person deploy and, and carry that weapon as well as stateside, I, when we think about people's jobs, I, I think about the crew chief, for instance, these are our mechanics working on, on planes. If I can't trust that person to safely and accurately repair the aircraft, we're putting a lot of people at, at risk, the air crew, the potential casualties, as well as the, the property itself. So those are some concerns. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, not a lot, but it is not unfrequent that as a military psychologist, I have to tell the member that they are no longer fit for, for service and we're mm -hmm. submitting you for consideration for a medical evaluation or separation. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, you know, being a, a civilian, being on the other side, it, it reminds me of conversations I've had with psychologists that work as performance uh, psychologists or sports psychologists and a combination with corrections psychologists as well, like where you might have a team that's depending on you and coaches that are involved. And you might have multiple data points that people might be even asking you as a sports psychologist. Can you tell me how, you know, the treatment's going with my athlete and having to balance out what do you share? When do you share those things? And do you ever share those things? And what is that line between privacy and confidentiality and then your ethical duty and then also your, your organization needs too? Thank you so much for breaking that down too. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot, even in your answer of thinking through how the, the many layers to, to each of them and the, the shades of, or the spectrum mm -hmm. that treatment can look like, or the next steps might look like too. Again, I want to move to uh, our last part of our chat today, and that that's around this neuropsychology fellowship that you were alluding to earlier and I introduced at the beginning of our chat today. It appears like in the military, you know, we were talking about the, the clinical work itself, the leadership opportunities and expectations, but it appears as though there's more than just that opportunity for leadership that room for specialization. I wanna home in on that for now in this latter part of our conversation. Tell me a little bit about the directions that people can go once they're in. Sure, I will say that our fellowships, we have many fellowships that I'll, I'll talk about, but it tends to work a little bit differently than the, the traditional tract. So you're not 
in the civilian world, typically you're going to an internship and then a lot of people go straight into their, their postdoc. For us, the expectation is you do your internship and then they want to have you serve at least an assignment as a general mental health practitioner. So generally that looks about three years, two or three years after internship where you're working in the outpatient mental health clinic, working in ADAP, wherever they're, they're having you work in before you're able to, to specialize. And so I, I think there are obviously some pros and, and cons with that. I think it is a, a benefit for me. I actually didn't know I wanted to be a neuropsychologist until internship when I mm -hmm. completed my rotation. So I, I think I came a little bit later than my other peers who are going through a fellowship. That time gave me the opportunity to, to get more experience and to, to beef up my application uh, to, to be competitive. But uh, lots of different fellowships. So I am in the neuropsychology fellowship. There is the clinical health psychology, aviation psychology, operation psychology, child psychology, forensic psychology, psychopharmacology, lots of different chances to, to specialize. Now, not all of those are funded each year. It, it just depends. It's a shifting kind of thing. And each service is, is a little bit different, but there are definitely opportunities to, to specialize. Relatedly, Kevin, you mentioned psychopharmacology as a specialization. That one caught my ear. Does that lead to prescriptive privileges in the military? What, what does that look like after you're done with that fellowship? Absolutely. I can speak very broadly about this, but uh, we there are probably about six or so. It's, it's a pretty small amount of, of psychologists who have had that fellowship, but our, the previous training director at Wright-Patterson, she was able to go through that fellowship. And yes, she absolutely had her prescriptive privileges. So she was able to act within that function and it was really helpful for her to be able to prescribe and have that as her skill set. Wow. The reason I wanted to ask more about that is we had a great conversation. We've had actually a couple conversations on and off the podcast about prescriptive privileges and the RXP movement and things like that. And I really want to encourage people to, to check out some of our past podcasts in regards to that, but also to, to note that the National Register is frequently talking about that, that area of practice the prescriptive privileges and thinking through the, the gaps in provision of care, whether that's on the military or the civilian side of needs. So yeah, thank you for elaborating a little bit on that. When it comes to the skills that you're gaining, whether it's the neuropsychology fellowship or more broadly as a military psychologist, what does that look like on the civilian side? Let's say someday Major Yates wants to just become Dr. Yates and wants to transition to a more civilian career. How does that experience translate? I think it really translates pretty well. So when you look at your resume of a military psychologist, whether they do their four years and get out or they kind of go all the way up to, to retirement, you have a lot of unique positions and unique things that, that you're doing that, that set you up well. So I think you're totally set up for whatever kind of clinical position. If you wanna be a therapist, then you are 
probably pretty competitive in that career field. For me, that was that was a big reason why I chose my path in as the neuropsychology fellowship is that, that my time is going to be up whether that's four years or nine years. And I want to kind of continue in my in my training and continue to be a, a neuropsychologist. So that is the goal. And I should be well competitive and, and marketable for, for those career sets. So any of the clinical positions you're you're well set up for. And I think the the other types of positions as well. So I we've talked about that leadership, right? And and the, the management. And so I, I've known plenty of providers who went on to do more director type positions or do something in more a, a less clinical more management position and i think the military really sets you up nicely for that wonderful well kevin thank you so much for for sharing your experience and just this process of going from start to to practice you know from graduate school thinking about it as a possibility where you might go, whether that's Division 19 or those pathways that you were alluding to, thinking about internship and the options that are present there, and then ultimately the commissioning as an officer in the military, as a psychologist. I think that, you know, even as someone that has been very interested in that possibility for myself, it was really great to hear you elaborate on what this path looks like and the options therein too, because it sounds like there's a great deal of diversity, whether that's fellowships or even the leadership experiences one might have. So thank you so much for being here with us to break it down. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, well, great. Well, Kevin, I wish you well um, and congrats on the new uh, rank. Um, I'm really excited for you. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing off the call how this fellowship proceeds. And with that, I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. Mm-hmm.